Attention, attention all personnel. It's MASHCAST. Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates episode by episode the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, General Robert Iron Guts Kelly. And joining us this week in the VIP tent is returning VIP, Lieutenant Colonel Amanda Reyes. Hi, Amanda. Ooh, a Lieutenant Colonel. I, you've been on every season so far, so I feel like you should be, you know, given a promotion through every season. I mean, I don't know what we're going to do for season 11. There's only so many ranks left, but, uh, but nevertheless, you, you deserve it, Amanda. You are one of my favorite guests, and I'm happy oh. to have you back for season four. I'm so happy to be here. Maybe what we could do is we could start with general and then just start giving me stars. I, that, that's right. That'll work. You one star, two star, three star. Yeah. Go from there. Time. All right. That makes sense. I like that. <laughs> five, five star general Reyes. That, that's got a ring to it. So, uh, we're here to talk about, of course, it's season four, episode 22, The More I See You. The original air date was February 10th, 1976, just before Valentine's Day. Can't be a coincidence here. Uh, it was written by Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds and directed by Gene Reynolds. So, of course, since Amanda, you've been on the show before. We know your history with MASH. Let's get right into the plot of this one. Uh, it's a boring day at the 477th. Hawkeye and BJ are so bored, they are sitting around basically talking nonsense to one another. But things start to look up when they see a Jeep arrive carrying two new nurses. Hawkeye and BJ watch from the swamp. And then Hawkeye is stunned. One of them is an old flame, Carly Breslin, played by Blythe Danner. More than an old flame, actually. Hawkeye reveals to BJ that he and Carly were deeply in love, lived together for over a year. Then it busted up, as Hawkeye says, trying to sound casual. Later, they go to visit the nurses in the tent, bringing gifts as a way to say welcome. Carly is just as stunned to see Hawkeye but they both pretend that they've never met. But little things slip through. Carly already knows where Hawkeye's nickname comes from and even finishes a joke that Hawkeye tells as if she's heard it before. They invite them to drinks after dinner, and later that night, Carly comes to visit Hawkeye alone in the swamp. At first, Hawkeye is guarded and defensive, but soon he drops the facade, and they talk openly about the old days. Hawkeye Hawkeye is still mad at Carly, now Carly Walton, the fact that she's married to an ad man named Doug. Carly is having none of it, reminding Hawkeye that he was always married to his medicine first, and that's what busted them up in the first place. The conversation turns into an argument, and Hawkeye admits there's been no one since you, faint copies at best. They resolve to have to try and work together, despite their history. Carly leaves, leaving Hawkeye to grimace and mutter, dismissively, Doug. Later, Hawkeye and Carly work together in surgery, but Hawkeye is snappish and mean, unable to stay professional. Carly suggests they talk again after work. They meet up at a small hut with a dirt floor away from the camp. They have some drinks, talk some more, and Hawkeye reveals how devastated he was when she left him. Eventually, though, they are embracing one another. Hawkeye kisses Carly, promising things will be better this time. Carly is hesitant, but eventually responds. A few days pass, and while filing some paperwork in Radar's office, Hawkeye and BJ, who is waiting for a long-distance call to Peg to go through, talk, with Hawkeye sort of apologizing for not being around much lately. Radar finds Hawkeye and shows him that Carly has put in for an immediate transfer. Hawkeye heads to Carly's tent, demanding an explanation. She says she can't continue on this path and will tell Potter the truth if she can be transferred out. Hawkeye tries to get her to stay, even feebly offering to propose to Carly. Carly isn't buying it and points out to Hawkeye how shaky his commitment to marriage really is and that his first love will always be, and should be, medicine. Hawkeye accepts this and they embrace one last time. Hawkeye makes a final half-hearted joke and leaves. Later, Hawkeye and BJ are back to being bored again. Eventually, though, the talk comes back around to Carly. 
Hawkeye says he doesn't mind that she's gone again. It's just the fact that she never altogether leaves. Okay, so this is uh, The More I See You. Uh, I'm going to say right off the bat, um, this episode, more than any other episode in the history of MASH, uh, is the reason why I even started this podcast. And I'll explain that. I'll explain why. is because everyone knows how great the big episodes are. You know, Abyssinia Henry and Welcome to Korea and The Interview, the famous episodes. You know, anytime MASH is regarded as one of, a great, one of the great shows, those are the clips you play. This episode is never shown in any of those. This episode is not regarded. I will admit, hold on, I don't know if it's regarded as a particularly classic episode, but you never see it in any sort of greatest hits package or, you know, clips of MASH. But I think this is one of the best episodes they've ever done. It's one of my easily top five, maybe even top three. And it's the kind of show that when I saw it as a child, I didn't like it because it's about gushy romance stuff. Who cares about that? But now that I'm older and I've had some experiences, this episode hits really, really hard. And so that's why I love it as much as I do. And I'm looking forward to talking about it. So, but Amanda, you said to me uh, before we started, like this one was not one that necessarily was like in your mind when you think of MASH the series. Yeah, I kind of am wondering why exactly I picked this episode. And I, I think it's because for some odd reason, Blythe Danner has become, been coming in and out of my life over the last couple of years. Like I've been <laughs> working on projects that she's uh, been in and, um, and I've always liked her, but I've really come to develop uh, a great respect for her and kind of a love for her, especially this part of her career. This is very early on for her. Um, and, and that must be what set it off. I think I like blondes because I remember you asked me to come on and I picked an episode specifically because Arlene Golanka was in it. <laughs> and I just think that I just like these particular actresses. And so this one kind of, I don't remember very well. And so I rewatched it um, to prepare for this a couple of times. And the first time I watched it, I thought it was really good. Um, the things that I was really taken with, I think maybe you may feel the same way. We could talk about the public versus the private and how they handle the Vietnam War here in this episode in a really interesting way. Um, but uh, also, Blythe Danner's really great in this, and not just in the way she's written, but she's written marvelously. She's definitely a peer for Hawkeye, right? Absolutely. Like you can, yeah, you can see where it comes from, right? The attraction. It's not just because she's very beautiful, but she's really smart. She's really strong. And they kind of complete each other in this way that you don't see in a lot of these movies. Like the chemistry is just already, it's built in. It's incredible, you know? And there's a scene, the breakup scene, where he tries to propose to her, where there's this camera shot and she's got her back to the camera and she's pointing at him and he's he's proposed himself into the corner <laughs> as the line. Okay, but, look where you are. Yeah, she's completely acting with her back and I'm obsessed with back acting, right? So <laughs> this is totally weird, but years ago, there was a, uh, Siskel and Ebert did a review of Pritzi's Honor and they showed a scene with Jack Nicholson and he had his back to the camera and he, I don't even remember what scene it was, but they were so impressed with him acting with his back that they made this big stink about it. And it got, I got like obsessed with that idea of it. And there's this great episode of Dallas where Ken Kerchival actually does a scene with Priscilla Pointer who plays his mom in this really emotional scene because she kind of had abandoned them or something and at him and his sister. And, uh, he's doing the whole thing almost with his back. And it was marvelous. And it started to stand out to me, these things that these actors could do. And she's doing like the work of 10 actors in this 
episode. You know, she's doing things that are like really subtle, but they're really, um, what do I want to say? They have an impact. Like almost everything she does has some sort of impact for me. And so it's such an emotionally charged performance while also being really quiet. And as an actor, I don't know how you approach that, but as a audience member, how I receive it is, is a very, like, I'm very impressed with Danner in this episode um, as an actress and as a character, as the character that she plays Carly. So, but the, what else I want to say about it is that you're talking about the big episodes of MASH and you know, as everybody knows, and, and you've talked about like, this is just coded for Vietnam. It came out when we were still in the war and everything that they did is really meant to translate over to what we were dealing with in our everyday lives. And we, and the famous episodes are really about the way the public handles these things, how the war had this overall impact on the world. Although we're dealing with these very specific characters, television is very personal, but this is a very private look at a different kind of casualty, right? So Hawkeye's a casualty of war simply because he has to be in Korea and doesn't want to be, but he's also a casualty of his passion of being a doctor. And she even asked him, what's it like being over here? And it's a nightmare for him, but it's not just a nightmare for him because he's in Korea. It's a nightmare for him because this thing that he wants most in the world has really made him have to say goodbye to other things that are almost as important, but not quite. And it's such a personal look at Hawkeye in a way that I don't know that we always get to see. We have lots of episodes about him, but this one in particular really feels like he has sacrificed so much just to be a doctor in his life. It's just, it's not just about being in Korea anymore. It's about the love of his life can't even be with him because of his almost obsession with being a good doctor. And so this episode transcends sort of what MASH is for me in the way I think about it in general terms. It's now it's becoming really about not just Hawkeye, but like the person, but something deep inside and something that we can all relate to on some level, probably like a lost love, but it's, it's such, I guess impact is the only word I can think of, but I think that's what stands out to me about this particular episode. Yeah, I mean, yes to all of that. Uh, start Starting at the beginning of that, yeah. I mean, one of the things I was so impressed with, uh, with this episode, the more I watch it, is that, yes, Blythe Danner's performance is marvelous. I mean, it is, it, it's, it's the kind of performance that like guest appearance Emmys are made of. Yes. You know, she was as far as she wasn't even nominated uh, or anything, mm-hmm. but I mean, my Lord, she is marvelous. Part of it is that wonderful voice. She's got that rasp. She has that great raspy voice, which to me is very kind of alluring, yes. you know, in a way it's, 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 a, it's an interesting voice. It's got, it's slightly high pitched, but yet it's got that rasp to it, which is really fascinating. And she, uh, you know, uh, Blythe Danner and Alan Alda have immediate chemistry. Uh, you completely buy them as a couple. Uh, and, you, and, and as you might imagine, you know, you have to buy that Carly Breslin is of Hawkeye's sort of speed in terms of his intellect and his energy. And you see it. You completely see it. And I was actually curious when I, again, I was researching this episode, whether they had worked together before. Mm, and that yeah. they had. They were in a movie. I've never seen this movie called To Kill a Clown. With Alan Alda as a Vietnam, as a, as a damaged Vietnam vet who apparently at some point in this movie sicks his dogs on Blythe Danner and her husband, which I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around <laughs> what that movie, I really want to see it now. Um, that was, uh, in 1972. So this is, this is the second time they'd worked together. 
Uh, obviously, they sound like they're adversaries uh, in that film, but here they're not. But for Blaith Danner to come in and a guest spot on a show that had been rolling for four years at this point, um, that's got to be hard enough for any actor to come in and just immediately seem like you're of a piece with this very tight unit of actors, despite the fact that, of course, two of the actors were brand new this season. But, I mean, MASH was a really tough, as a, as a cast, you know, a great fighting unit. I mean, they were just really burning on all thrusters here. And for somebody to come in and just immediately fit into that world, and in a weird way, it's like if they had not written Carly as a love interest, Ronka, you could see her being a regular character. I mean, she fits in that well. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, you know, we've all seen movies where couple, you know, uh, people are supposed to be in love with one another and they have no chemistry. You know, there's just none. The movie is telling you they are in love, but you're not buying it because you're not seeing it. But here it's immediate. I mean, it's just immediate. And that is, again, an all tribute to, to Blythe Danner and, and the direction by Gene Reynolds and the writing by, by Gilbert and Reynolds. Um, and then regarding Hawkeye, I like that idea a lot, Amanda, is that, you know, the show will have another hundred plus episode, 150 episodes to go after this, but we're 96. I think this is like the 94th episode. We're 94 in and we are seeing a side of Hawkeye. We have never seen. Right. And we really kind of won't ever see again in a lot of ways. There's one episode in the sixth season that, that kind of tries to do this somewhat, but we, we never really see this level of vulnerable Hawkeye where he's got someone who has his number. And he, you know, I mean, they have that, that wonderful, and we'll talk about it as we go through the scenes, but they have that wonderful scene in the tent where he's making so many jokes. You could tell he's trying too hard. And she says, you're, she literally says, you're trying too hard. Do I make you uncomfortable? And he just stops and he goes, I'll stop pressing. And there's this, that's a wonder, like you immediately buy that these are two people that know each other's secret codes. Right. And they immediately have picked up on it after however many years apart. And it, it's just remarkable. It really is just amazing. And, you know, Blythe Danner was somewhat of a, of a name by the time she did this. She had been in a couple of movies, uh, but she wasn't a big name. But, you know, you got to, you realize, of course, you know, you're hoping you, you hire the right actor and they deliver the performance you want. But, man, did they get kind of lucky here because she just crushes it. She just crushes it. Uh, I was curious uh, how much after I saw that they had appeared in something else together, how much Alan Alda's influence in casting might have been. Mm. I, I wondered if he worked with her and just saw something in her. And when this episode came up, he thought, "Oh, she would be really great in this role." You know, I, I don't know how that works, um, but it, I just wondered because since they know each other, you know, and have worked together, I was just interested in that. And another thing I want to point out was, and we have that side story with Colonel Potter. I guess this is supposed to be the first episode where he really gets into painting. Yeah. But, we see um, him paint for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. But, um, but this is essentially like a two person play with a little bit of BJ coming in there, but um, it's, it's almost, it's so different from a lot of the MASH episodes that I think of when I think of MASH, it's just really these two people hanging out. And she was a theater actor. She won a Tony in 1970 for Butterflies Are Free. Um, and she started her work on stage like a lot of actors uh, we see on TV. And um, uh, I don't know if like she was just really fully prepared for this because of her, her stage work. But the setup of it is very much like you could literally have just put this, uh, you know, just set up a tent. Yeah, and done 90% yeah. of the script with just these two people. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, wasn't there a bunch of years ago, like the, there was some sitcom 
that they did as a play. They did episodes of like the Jeffersons or something. There was oh, yeah, some, yeah. yeah. And, and like, you could absolutely do this episode uh, on Broadway. Yeah. That would be, and yeah, you mentioned Colonel Potter is in this episode as is Klinger and father Mulcahy. They get very quick little scenes. I think almost just to, to not have it be just Hawkeye right. and BJ. Um, uh, by the way, uh, Margaret and Frank do not appear in this episode at all. There's really no room for them here. Um, We'll get to it. There is a scene with BJ in this episode, which I will, uh, you know, at, at the risk of of hyperbole, um, is one of, to me, one of the most profound things I've ever heard said on a television program, ever. And and the fact that this episode is so heavily a Hawkeye episode, and yet there is my all-time favorite BJ moment in this episode, uh, to me says something about how good the writing was is that, you know, you could, I mean, we just a couple episodes ago, we had the show with Hawkeye where it's just Hawkeye, literally. And this episode could have kind of devolved into that a little, but I'm glad that they take the moment to give BJ this moment. Again, we'll talk about when we get to it. So uh, as I mentioned, they said the, the, you know, the show opens with them just kind of goofing around. They're bored. They're doing the kind of word games or ring it in, um, you know, bored. So all aboard, all this kind of stuff, the kind of thing you do with your buddy when you're passing time, there's nothing else to do. Then they see the Jeep arrives. The two nurses get out, Blake Danner, as we talked about. The other nurse is Mary Jo Catlett. Uh, we've seen her on a million TV shows. She has had a, quite a sort of second career as a voice on SpongeBob. She's got like, oh. like seven, she's got like 700 SpongeBob credits. Uh, most people remember her from different strokes. Yeah. She's also on Maud, Give Me, Give Me a Break, a TV staple. She would actually come back to MASH in a uh, fifth season episode. Um, so this, again, she kind of appears as this nurse and then we never really only see her one other time, but we know something is up when they both walk by to their tent and Hawkeye hides, he hides his face so he won't be seen. And of course, BJ notices that and he's, you know, and Hawkeye is doing his best to sound casual, you know, but you know, he's like, you hid, who did hit? You did hit. They're going, you're playing all these games. And then BJ kind of keeps gently pressing and then he finds out, you know, uh, I, I, if I saw her, if I didn't see her every hour, I got the bends and uh, you saw a lot of each other. Yeah, we saw a lot of each other. You know, well, we had to. We were living together. Oh, okay. You know, that's a big, that's a big deal. And he even says the plot thickens and Hawkeye continues to try to sound casual. Not long, year, year and a half. And BJ yeah. is not long, not long. And he just, <laughs> you know, BJ is obviously sort of, struck gold here because he is now seeing a side of his buddy that he, we've never, you know, we've never seen and he's never seen that Hawkeye is completely thrown off his game. It's also like kind of a controversial thing because I don't think in the fifties it was as common to live with somebody. Yeah. That's kind of a big, big deal. Yeah. And I was surprised that they didn't make more of it um, because it would have been, it's an interesting. And I guess when we get to the BJ part, you're talking about, um, we could talk about BJ's take on all of this, but like, oh, yeah. cause there's some controversial stuff happening, happening in this episode um, in a lot of different ways. And yet um, I don't feel like we think less of the characters for their actions, but at the, but it is something that makes you, kind of take a step back like wow look what they're doing you know Hawkeye but, um, is putting the moves on a married woman yeah and and she's going for it and mm-hmm. but would, one of the things you you talked about and it just occurred to me like when he's at when he sees them and he goes into the corner you know he's bookended by these scenes where he puts himself in these corners <laughs> with her you know what i mean and it's like it's like he loves her but i do think he feels kind of boxed in at the same time because of his desire 
to be a doctor outweighs his desire to be like completely there for her, you know? Mm -hmm. How small must the world feel? Uh, The world seems like a big place, but how small must the world feel when you've gone all the way to Southeast Asia and then your ex shows up? (laughs) Right. I mean, you have really got to feel like, oh my Lord, the world is apparently got eight people in it because I keep running (laughs) into this person. I mean, he even says of all the people, he's like, there's, there's a hundred hospitals, clearing stations, you know, medical ships. And of all the people to jump out of a, a Jeep in Southwest Korea, why did it have to be her? Um, and again, he's continually trying to act like he's, he, this is nonchalant. BJ catches him and he says, uh, yeah, it's no big deal. And BJ's like, it's no big deal. That's why you're reading Frank's diary. I mean, that's how, <laughs> that's how bored he is. Um, and then he finally, uh, he says, you know, I'll have to check this out. And then he has that, you know, he says, find out, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it's not even me. Maybe you're not even, maybe it's not even her. And then he has that pause where he just goes, it's me. It's her. And he's just realizing he's going to have to face this. Yeah. Uh, it's just absolutely, it's just absolutely marvelous. Um, and so uh, then there's a scene in, in the, in the uh, OR where he talks to Radar and Klinger and he asks, he asks to Radar about, um, you know, uh, you know, where these nurses come from. Are they, are they, are they, are they just uh, kind of uh, passing by and Radar's like, no, 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 they're, they're, they're here to stay. And then, of course, he says, uh, Anderson, Becky, and Walton Carly. And, of course, Hawkeye doesn't know her by that name. So that he realizes, married name. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and then we have a scene in the tent with uh, Becky and Carly where they talk about uh, Korean customs. Uh, they talk about some localities where the <sighs> married men wear a top knot and stuff like that. What do you think of this scene? Do you feel like it's... On the one hand, it feels like it's a little bit like killing time. At the other, other hand, maybe it's it's our only chance to see Carly sans Hawkeye. Yeah, I think so. I think I like the relationship she has with the other nurse, and it's kind of a fun a, a scene. And also, I think so. I don't know how long they've been in in Korea, and I, I question that. But like, they have such a casual attitude about going into this tent and getting set up, hmm. and so I don't know if that's to let show us that they maybe have been around for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, and, but of course they're looking at that book too. It's very conflicting to me, but, um, cause it's like, they don't understand all the customs yet. So it's kind of interesting, but, um, I like the scene because I think, well, I mean, for me, it's like Blythe Danner has chemistry with everybody. What's the point? <laughs> she's just going to show up in a scene and, and drop her in and she's going to be able to work with anybody. You know what I mean? And they're <laughs> good together and they're fun and, and it's nice to see the camaraderie in that. But yeah, it probably is to like, kind of give us a look at the outside world for her she's got this very casual like they're just having fun and then she sees hawkeye and her eyes which are already giant anyway oh. they get so big because she recognizes his voice and then she turns around and sees him when he comes in and it's just this moment that you could tell she just was not the moment he had just the scene before you know yep oh i absolutely love it when uh, we hear the knock at the door and becky goes to answer it and then we hear hawkeye's voice and he says men are here with your welcome and we're just uh, Gene Reynolds zooms in on her, as you say, with those giant eyes of hers. And then he then he switches the shot to a close-up of her where she turns around and she just looks gobsmacked. I mean, literally her mouth is hanging open. And she sits back on the bed, kind of collecting herself a little bit. And I love this idea that we're having to sort of get in the heads of these people and we have to kind of catch up in that in this moment, Carly and Hawkeye are mutually deciding 
how we're going to handle this. And mm-hmm. as, as, as the audience, we're not given a clue because we don't see it on their faces. And in fact, more back acting, as you talked about, <laughs> we see uh, Carly from the back as she, as she kind of brushes her hair back. Mm-hmm. And they both decide in this moment, we're going to pretend we don't know each other. And I love the sort of like almost drawing room comedy of it because, of course, Hawkeye knows and Carly knows and BJ knows, but yet they're all, Becky doesn't know. And the three of them are all pretending that none of them know each other. <laughs> That's really. right. Yeah. It's BJ, BJ instill, because you wonder, did Hawkeye and BJ talk about this when they collected their, the bucket of stuff? the bucket of goodies or did they just decided at the moment that BJ's kind of just following Hawkeye's lead. Okay. He's pretending he doesn't know Becky. So I'll pretend I don't know either. I love all of the subterfuges going on and it's all just sort of instantaneous. And for one woman. Yeah. (laughs) We don't see it again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's just, it's absolutely marvelous. So uh, we get the, there's a uh, beginning of a recurring joke where he says, this is BJ Honeycutt. And uh, Becky says, what does BJ stand for? And he says, practically anything which of course is something we will never quite know. And then of course, BJ introduces Captain Hawkeye Pierce and Becky goes Hawkeye. And then Carly wags her finger and goes, that's from the last of the Mohicans, isn't it? Which of course we've already learned that that's where Benjamin Pierce got it from. So I love that Becky is, she's signaling to Hawkeye. Okay. We obviously know each other, but we're not giving it away to Becky. The love that she knows the derivation of Hawkeye's nickname. I just love that detail. It's great. It's great. They have such good interplay together, like right off the bat. Yeah. Oh, my God. And so they, they bring a, BJ brings a cigar, a pipe, a ham for them all. And then Hawkeye <laughs> does a joke about we even brought uh, extra table leaves in case. And he starts the joke and Carly finishes it. Even doing a Groucho mimic, a a Groucho pantomime, which, of course, Hawkeye does all the time, just so we can extend ourselves for you. And she kind of rolls her eyes a little. And it's like you almost wonder, Becky must be like, boy, Carly's really sharp. Like, she seems to know all this stuff. (laughs) I think she's so like, um, because there's a great part uh, with Becky um, when they leave and she says, I love him. And Mm -hmm. Carly says, which one? And she's like, I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's just so like happy to see these two handsome guys show up with their like housewarming gifts. You yeah. Know? They're very sweet. It's a very yeah. sweet gesture. I mean, to, they bring toilet paper and they bring soap and all this kind of stuff. And they talk about they, and they even invite them to dinner. Uh, so they sort of say, you know, well, why don't you meet us in the, in the tent? So yeah, I mean, good Lord. I would imagine if you showed up at mass, you would, you would love it if somebody was the, uh... this is my dream. Are you yeah. kidding me? Have Alan Alda show up my doorstep and invite me out to dinner. With green soap? Who knows? <laughs> He's got the great joke. Uh, they say uh, dinner's around seven, nausea's around eight. Yeah, that's right. And then, yeah, and then it's with Becky doing the the, the, the bupper on the scene where she says, yeah, I don't care. So, uh, it, you know, a great scene. And then we cut to later on in the swamp, clearly after dinner. And I love, again, you know, I, I'm reading into it, but this is what we're here for. I love that there, that BJ is nowhere to be found. I love that he is sort of cleared out. Now, of course, you could say maybe he's on duty. He's at the O Club. But I feel like he talked with Hawkeye and was mm-hmm. like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll skedaddle so you can talk with Carly. Because obviously, they're not going to have the, the conversation in Carly's tent. But I, I just, I don't know. I feel like, oh, BJ, you're just being such a pal. Yeah, yeah. He, well, like, I just want to get to that moment with him because I want to talk about, like, because he's, 
you know, I think he's straddling two different worlds here with Hawkeye in this episode, you know, his own personal morality and their actions, you know, but he's, he's a very good friend from beginning to end. I really love, we could talk about the end scene. Well, he may not even know that Carly is married yet. He'll find out soon enough, uh, but he doesn't exactly know. And so we have our first scene with the two of them and uh, and, uh, they, they have a drink and uh, you know, she drinks, it's pure poison. He says, we think so. And then I love that she kind of just relaxes. She puts her hands on her hip and she says, oh, how are you, Hawkeye? Are you well? I and mean, how do I look? And she says, uh, a little a little older, a little thinner, a few gray hairs. And it leads to the great line about the, that's These aren't mine. I'm breaking in a friend's senility, which is, I love that joke. Um, and then he said, he, she, you know, uh, they talk about uh, the, the fact that she's married. And uh, well, before that, actually, she asks him about what it's like over here. And he says, it's rough. It's mostly kids you work on as if they machine gunned a high school class. And, um, it's eerie. You know, that's a line that in 1975, uh, is what uh, a line that a writer would come up with to conjure the worst image that anybody could come up with. And now, unfortunately, in America, we live with that, uh, as a sort of regular part of our freedom, uh, so to speak. So, uh, it's uh, how times have changed and not, uh, for the better. Yeah. Um, but then they have this conversation and again, he is, he's nervous. You can tell he talks about it. Uh, you know, he's, he talks about that. He's a solitary figure, solitary figure, seemingly sentenced to singleness. And that's when she says, uh, you know, like, are, are you, are you nervous? And he says, I'll stop pressing. They do talk about her husband, Doug. And, uh, she mentions that he is in advertising and he goes, Ah, advertising, which is dripping with contempt. Yes. And Carly does not let him get away with it. And I love, she says, is that white smoke coming out of her ears just mean you've been elected, you've elected yourself Pope? (laughs) And I love, like, she's not taking his shit. She's just not. She's like, yeah, so what? He's in advertising. So what? And it's, it's these scenes where you're like, yeah, you totally could buy these two in a relationship. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting because even though Doug isn't in the episode at all, he's mentioned enough and there's enough information about him and her relationship with him, as we find out later, um, that he kind I have a little sympathy for him. I, I think I like him, first of all, mm-hmm. because he's got her and Hawkeye had her and you have to be a certain caliber, I think, to have a woman. Right. Yeah. Like he can't her. be he can't be a fever or anything. Yeah. No, he's he's probably a pretty good guy. Yeah, he works in advertising, but what's wrong with that? He's probably pretty intelligent. He's probably funny. He's probably good looking, you know, but he's also probably very in love with her too, you know, and she seems at this point to be in love with him as well. And so I end up eliciting sympathy for a character that I don't ever see or meet. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a mad right. He's probably like somebody out of Mad Men at this point, you know, when you think about it, you want to, you want a picture. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, in this initial scene, I don't think that Blythe Danner in any way suggests that Carly is still in love with Hawkeye. That's right. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's talking to him as a friend and, and again, she, she doesn't put up with it with his nonsense where, uh, you know, he's like, uh, you know, she's like, well, mostly I get, I got married and he goes, Hawkeye says, well, not to me. And then she says, when is the first second or last time that you ever asked me? And then it gets into this whole argument. But yeah, I love that, you know, she's talking to him like in, like in old flame, but not because she's still 
kind of falling falling for him now. We know later on that she kind of maybe will, maybe she still does feel for him a little, or she simply gives in because Hawkeye started putting such a full court press on her. Um, and we will learn later that her marriage to Doug is not as solid as it might sound. Right. But it, but I love in this initial scene, it's not like Carly is. Oh, here's Hawkeye again. We'll jump right back into our old you know, sort of romantic ways. I like that she's she's talking to him like they are equals and that they are friends and that she's not susceptible to his charms. I just think it's terrific. Well, also like, you know, had he, like, there's all these things. It's, this is a really weird, tenuous like connection, but so I watch a lot of love boat, right. Which is obviously Mm -hmm. all about romance, but there was an episode I just watched recently with Delta Burke, Jeffrey Tambor. And I can never get his name right, but it's Richard like Jillian. He was, he's married to Gene Smart or was, he just passed away recently, but. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So he's, he had dated Delta Burke and um, things didn't work out because he wouldn't propose to her. So she ended up with getting engaged to Jeffrey Tambor and they weren't <laughs> wow. really in love, but he had a lot of money. They weren't really in love, but she was happy with him, you know, and he seemed to be happy with her. And then Richard Julian gets on the same you know, love boat with an expedition with them journey or whatever. And, um, and then things happen, but like he says to her, you know, uh, I don't understand why we're not together. And she's like, I would have done all these things for you, but you wouldn't put this ring on my finger. I wanted a ring on my finger. You know, that was really important to her, like the commitment. Right. And so, and he couldn't do it because he didn't have the money or this or that, which is what Hawkeye says here, right. That he was a resident and there's mm-hmm. always an excuse. Right. And she's like, I didn't care. She said, you could have put like a tab from a tin can on my finger and I would have taken it because I loved you, but you didn't do it. And now I'm with this guy. But of course, everything works out in a different way. But like, um, you know, as it does on the boat. But like, um, it's interesting, the similarities of that. And so when she says, so she's a nurse, she has a career, but she says, you know, getting married mostly. And you can tell that's a really important thing to her. Yes. Yes, she wanted the commitment. Yes. And as we find out that Hawkeye is never going to be able to make that commitment. In fact, this this episode uh, does feature a lot of that Hawkeye. Like, he really is, you know, the cliche, going to be married to his career because he is so gifted. And Hawkeye himself regards it as a, uh, you know, a um, a lofty profession as well. He should, but he also regards himself you know, in a kind of lofty manner because they right. talk about, she says, uh, you know, he talks about how much he was struggling and she said, Doug was struggling when we got married. And then Hawkeye just absolutely explodes with that again, dripping with contempt, struggling in advertising. What would have been the loss? Unless Huckster persuading America, it's breath is bad that they're condemned to purgatory. If their armpits don't smell like roses. And I love it. He just goes, I was training for medicine. And he says it like it's a, like a rifle shot. He just, you know, spits it out at her. And you could tell that he is, you know, he does regard his career as sort of like, I'm doing something a little more important than advertising. And, you know, you can argue whether that's an accurate perception or not, but you, I love that. And I've said this in other episodes. I love that the show was willing to allow Hawkeye to once in a while be kind of arrogant. Right. Uh, You know, he was our leading man and you want him to be beloved, but of course, you know, the, as, as Larry Gilbert said about MASH, it wasn't just a smile button. You could do different things. And I liked that occasionally they were willing to show Hawkeye be maybe a little full of himself. And you well, can understand why he would be because he is so gifted. It's a human nature. You know, uh, of all the characters on TV ever, he's one of the most human that I can think of. And so 
he's going to be flawed because any character that doesn't have flaws is, yeah. they're not interesting. You know what I mean? You're not going to watch 250 episodes of somebody like that. No. I mean, it might be okay. Like on something like medical center, you know, hmm. where Chad Everett is like, the, I don't think he had any flaws. Let's face it. And he was great. But like in general for a show like this, you can't really have a show about humanity and not make your lead human. You know, it would be ridiculous. And so he has to have these like little cracks and then we see them off and on throughout the show. And yeah, I agree. They're really great. Yeah. Uh, and then so she talks about that, the, you know, if you would needed me a little more, uh, then maybe it would have worked. But she says, uh, Doug is willing to commit to something outside of his work. Uh, happily, I'm that thing. And then Hawkeye really shoots for the moon, uh, you know, uh, where he says, and he, you know, he pauses and then he says, there's been no one since you faint copies at best, which is that is putting all your chips on the table, because if that doesn't I mean, if he's lying, it's a terrible thing to say because it's, you know, we should not lie about that something that important. And if it's true, he is handing an enormous amount of power over yeah. to Carly. I mean, to sit to, to run into an old flame and say there's been no one since you. That is really giving them an enormous, enormous amount of leverage over you. And it's you. I wonder in the scene, is Hawkeye really thinking they're going to get back together? They're fighting. It seems unlikely. But and or maybe it's just she is so able to cut through his defenses that he's going to say that. Maybe almost realizing, oh, Jesus, that's not probably not the smartest thing. (laughs) That's kind of how I took it. I think that when they just talk, they talk. And it's not like there's no wall between them. You know what I mean? And if there is, she can see it and she can kind of break it down. So I feel like everything that comes out of his mouth in this episode, well, that's interesting because he says things and I don't know how full hearted he is at the end, but she can see that, you Mm -hmm. know, when he proposes. Right. So like, I feel like, I feel like everything that's coming out of him in one way or another is very upfront. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of like being with like a really close friend where you drop all those pretenses uh, yes. that, that we, that we carry around with us uh, in, in a normal setting because uh, you're with someone that you don't have to do that for. Yes. Uh, it's just the way, way it is. So, uh, so then she sort of challenges him uh, where he's like, you know, we can work together. And she's like, can you do that? And he's like, watch me. And then she leaves. And then he has that dismissive Doug, uh, which again, I, I like that idea of yours, Amanda, that like, yeah, we never see Doug. We know that he's on a Navy ship. Hawkeye even has the joke about he's probably got the eye on us right now. But man, he kind of looms large in this episode, despite yeah. the fact we never meet the guy. I love that. I love that. There's a, there's a whole thing for me. Um, and I'm thinking of random TV movies and stuff, but like <laughs> where characters are sort of like ghosts throughout mm-hmm. the episode. And there's or the movie whichever it is and there's just a quality to that kind of thing where you learn about somebody you never see and i guess this isn't the same example but the first person to come to my head now although they made her real was jenny piccolo on happy days you know they (laughs) created an entire character right for years yeah you never saw her right right yeah and i love i love that you get to know these people but they managed to do it in a real shorthand way in this episode right doug exists he's a person to me he works in advertising he's in the war he's married to carly and she seems to love him and so like it's there's just something about him haunting the the episode that's really interesting it makes me sort of sad by the end of it 
Yeah. Um, so that's the act break of the show. And then the, we come back and then there's this scene with Colonel Potter where he's uh, painting. And again, as we said, this is the first time we see that he paints. He talks about that Eisenhower paints and Churchill paints. And it gives us a chance for Radar uh, or Gary Berghoff to do some impersonations as Gary Berghoff liked to do. It's kind of just a nice little filler just to kind of remember, oh, okay, there is other things going on in the 477. Now, I did find an interesting little bit of trivia here is that Radar, after he does an imitation of a turtle, he imitates uh, Al Jolson, and he does the Al Jolson voice. And if anybody's ever seen an old old movie with Al Jolson, it's a pretty good Al, Al Jolson impersonation. But he mentions uh, a, uh, a he says another a song written by a dear friend of mine, Mister Harry Warren. Harry Warren oh. was a singer, was a a songwriter, and in fact, he wrote the song "The More I See You," That's right. which this episode is named after. And if you ever want to hear the song sung even on mash go back to the episode from this season quo vadis captain chandler when Klinger comes in with the mail he is singing the more i see you that's the song he is singing that's the song that uh that uh colonel flag tells him you know basically says you know i want to see you in a uniform tinkerbell or whatever he says so that's the song so uh, i have to think that that was written partly as a nod to Harry Warren, because they're borrowing his song title that they mention him in the same episode. I mean, that, that can't be a coincidence. It can't. No, there's too much good stuff happening here. None of it's yeah. a coincidence. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, and then uh, Potter chastises uh, Radar because Radar does an Al Jolson impression without singing. And of course, what's the point of an Al Jolson impression <laughs> uh, without singing? Um, so then, then we go into surgery and we see Hawkeye, and uh, Carly working together, and he is as brittle as can be. Uh, in fact, he's downright nasty. Uh, at one point, she uh, pulls out some suction, and uh, he says, when I say, and she apologizes. She says, sorry, and he goes, there's a new word in your vocabulary, which is just completely unprofessional yeah. and really nasty. And then I love in this scene, we get a, um, e- even over the course of 250 episodes, we never really got a sense of how the unit worked of how people were assigned or when they were on duty. It just seemed like everybody was on duty all the time because she asks, shall I not, shall I ask to not be assigned to you in the future? And he says, it isn't a dinner party. You can't just rearrange the place cards. You'll get me when you get me. And that is the only one of the few times we ever get any sense of how mesh is organized that it's like, okay, I guess, Different nurses are rotated across different doctors. Not everybody gets the same doctors all the time. I mean, it's it's something they never really bothered with, but I like that they even made the effort to suggest that, yeah, there is some sort of system in place here. Yeah, a crazy system. Um, one of the things I noticed about this scene, too, when we were talking about Blythe Danner doing all this like amazing acting, is that we see the regular actors in surgery all the time, but I never really thought so much about like how that is for an actor coming in to have to convey so much emotion with your eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, um, right. It just got the mask. Yeah, yeah, and and it, she does a really good job. And it was the first time it kind of struck me that we're watching these actors act a lot where it's just their eyes and then the voice, right? Mm-hmm. And and they have to get all of this stuff across when they do it. And a lot of times it's just jokey stuff, but there's she's doing a lot of stuff in this episode. And, and you were talking about like it's an Emmy-worthy performance, which I totally agree with. And I was talking about how marvelous she is. But um, And I know I said this again, but I kind of want to uh, like underline how how quiet 
the role is. Like she's, it's not one of these like over the top. I think sometimes when you say somebody should be nominated for something, they seem so larger than life. Yeah. But she's just not like that. She's just such a quiet performance, but it's so strong. It's, it's amazing. And so I was thinking of her as an actress doing that scene, being dropped in and being like, like how I imagine Blythe Danner to be, you know, like an actress and is like, Oh, I get to act with my eyes in this scene. This is so <laughs> exciting. You know what I mean? <laughs> We've all had to learn to, gesticulate with our eyes only in the last year and a half of yeah. nobody seeing the bottom half of our faces. Um, so then they decide to meet up uh, uh, again after work. And then we go to this, uh, this set that we've never seen before. And we've really never uh, heard about before that Hawkeye has some sort of rendezvous tent somewhere. Uh, it's not exactly a tent. It looks like it's an actual structure. We see that there's some like corrugated metal walls. It's not the O club. Uh, it's some other location that we have never seen before and we will never see again. Uh, and of course, uh, Carly realizes, well, this is probably a place that Hawkeye has taken a lot of nurses to. And he says only in emergencies. Luckily there's dot, dot, dot. And she fills the joke. There's a constant state of emergency again, <laughs> doing the Groucho voice. So it's just these two, it's, it's going to break your heart that they don't stay together because they are so perfect for one another outside of their issues, but man, their chemistry again is just off the charts. Yes, absolutely. Oh. And you know, it's interesting too, because um, he, it, it makes me feel like he really doesn't take women back there. Like he jokes with her and he plays along, but I feel like this is kind of a quiet place for him. Oh really? You think this is like his, his yeah. own little retreat or something? That's kind of the impression I got when I saw it. That was my interpretation of it. You're, he probably does take nurses there, but it kind of felt like a real personal place for him. That's interesting. I never really thought of it that way. I mean, he does have the swamp, but of course he shares it with two guys. So yeah. It's hard to get rid well, of them occasionally. Take them somewhere. I, yeah. And so it's likely that's what he's doing. But for some reason, it just seemed like a hideaway that this guy would go to for the times when he doesn't want to be courting women or being funny or whatever. That's true. Uh, yeah. I mean, we thought about that. I mean, it's, it's, you wonder if it's just Hawkeyes. It looks a little too decorated for it just to be Hawkeyes. Mm, like it's, yeah. it's not, it's not a hut. It's an actual building somewhere so i almost think it's it's some official building for the at the at the camp that uh they've just mm. sort of cleared out or maybe for this use and here they get into the real meat of the relationship where they kind of go over the same uh the, the same ground and he talks about how much he was hurt he says you broke my legs uh, again a, you know a marvelous image again yeah. a very uh, medical image you know have you broken my legs and then he says he you know, talks about I finally, 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 finally got over the hate. And then again, he goes for broke here where he leans in and he says, but I never got over the love. And I love Carly's reaction. Uh, in a lot of other movies and a lot of other TV shows, mostly written by men, of course, that's going to sway the woman at that point. She's going to, oh, oh my God. But I love that Carly looks kind of annoyed. She's almost like, oh, not this again. And she gets up and sort of walks away from him a little bit. And he chases her, not chases her, but he follows her. And the camera movement follows them as they're standing up. But I like that she she even calls him the master complicator. Like she's almost That's like, right. I don't need this. And again, she is showing enormous resolve and strength up until the moment, of course, that he leans in to kiss her and she reciprocates. And of course, at that point, she is sending other signals that Hawkeye is all too uh, ready to take advantage of. Well, that's what he does. That's what he <laughs> does. What girl doesn't want this to happen to her? <laughs> 
So, uh, and he said, we see them kissing again. And in fact, she leans up and hold cradles his face in her hand, which suggests that she is more now. She is not just uh, passively accepting this. She's actively engaging. Yeah. This is where it goes to a place. I didn't expect it to go. We're heading into this spot. How so? Well, with that, they actually go forward and she has an affair. Like I was not expecting that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and it's almost in, in some weird way. Again, I'm like overthinking it, but this is what the show is. It, I feel like the show itself, the omniscient narrator of Mash, is almost like this moment is too private. We're cutting away to something silly. We're gonna just kind of give you a little bit of a break, and we cut to Colonel Potter painting again. And this time, he's painting. Klinger doing uh, kind of a discus throwing thing and Klinger's in the mostly nude standing there. And again, I know that they were doing it just to structure the show properly to give you some balance of, of, of the story. But I don't know, in my head, it almost feels like that. It almost feels like we're so, this is such a personal moment between Hawkeye and Carly that, Oh, I let's not even look at it. Let's, let's just go do something silly. that's easier to tolerate. You know, you said something earlier, and I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but it made me sort of rethink these scenes with Colonel Potter in that you're saying like, oh, yeah, we need to see other things happening around the camp. But one of the things when you said that, I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting, and I'm so glad they added this because one of the things about this episode is that they're so wrapped up in their own worlds that they've kind of forgotten everything else that's happening around them. And here's uh, this kind of idea that life does go on for other people in other ways. You know what I mean? But they're just so mm-hmm. tied up in the situation that even they've forgotten what happens around the camp. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Um, there, we have this little joke scene where Father Mulcahy, he asks to have some Bibles returned because he says there's a typo. Uh, it says, thou shalt commit adultery. Uh, and apparently that was a real thing that had, there was apparently um, some run of Bibles that had that as a typo. And they're apparently now considered collector's items. <laughs> for for very for various people, but it's a real thing. By the way, uh, he tells Klinger take five, and Klinger does kind of like a Greek oh, pose. It's great. J- Jamie Farr, pretty well built. He looks great. I, yeah, he yeah. Great. I was really impressed. Like, I mean, everybody has fatigues on, so none of these clothes are are, are uh, flattering. Uh, but uh, Jamie Farr is pretty pretty cut. Good on you, Klinger. <laughs> He's actually aged really well too. Like Jamie Farr is a really handsome older guy. I, uh, he is scheduled to be at a convention in October uh, in New Jersey, and I plan to go <gasps> to that so I will get to meet oh. him. I am very much looking forward to shaking Mr. Farr's hand. I've never oh, met him. I've never so spoken jealous. to him. Uh, I am really, really looking forward to that. I hope that it, I hope it comes to pass. Um, and so now uh, then we have a BJ in Radar's office, and he is talking to an operator, and we talk about that he is – going to be sort of patching together a call uh, to Peg. And at this point, an indeterminate amount of time has passed. We don't exactly know uh, because they start this conversation where uh, he hands radar, excuse me, hands BJ a, um, Hawkeye hands BJ a folder and it says MP and they kind of, again, play their word games where that could be, uh, 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 you know, military police uh, or a member of parliament. And then Hawkeye and then BJ says, or married person. And Hawkeye immediately knows what that means. And I love that they both give each other a look. No dialogue. There's just that moment of they both understand what the other is saying. 
and I love this kind of thing. And this is the, this is the sort of thing when I was a kid that I really loved about MASH is that this was a show. I don't know about, I don't know about you, uh, you, Amanda, I generally don't like um, entertainment with kids in it. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't care. I didn't want to be Robin as a kid. I wanted to be Batman. Um, so I didn't like shows with kids. I didn't, I like shows with adults. I liked, I wanted to be an adult. And one of the things I love about this episode is that it is so much for adults. This is about how adults talk to one another and understanding that adults have that only other adults can have once you've had certain sets of experiences. And I love that uh, Gene Reynolds allows that pregnant pause between the two of them where after BJ has said married person, Hawkeye knows what BJ is trying to suggest. And they just look at each other like, okay, are we doing this? We're doing this. And we're going to have this conversation. Uh, and I just, again, it's just a marvelous uh, bit for these two actors. Well, they kind of needed to have the scene. And it didn't even occur to me again until you just mentioned this just in passing, what was happening in the scene. But, you know, Peg is a character that we didn't, we didn't see for a long time, right? Right, right? Either. And yet we knew a lot about her because of BJ. And she became like a ghost on the show. She was always there because of BJ. And so Doug is sort of like the uh, a much more shorthand version of that. Mm-hmm. But now we've got these two characters that we've never seen and different things are happening to them while their partners are at the 4077th. And I guess they're sort of bookending or juxtaposed against each other, however you want to word it, um, as like, uh, and I don't want to pass morality on anybody because I don't necessarily think that what Carly and Hawkeye are doing is a bad thing. Um, but like, there's this idea that Doug is on the ship somewhere just waiting to be reunited with Carly and all this stuff has happened that would devastate him probably if he knew. And then Peg is doing the same thing with BJ, but at the same time, that's going to be a totally different thing because he has been and remains throughout the show. I guess there's a temptation that comes along at least once right in the show, but yeah. um, But nothing that's going to really, that Peg needs to really worry about, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so there's two totally different relationships happening, but I don't think one, again, I don't want to pass morality on this because there's something about the relationship and we can talk about it. Um, and things you said about Doug, but it's, it's interesting that he is going to be talking to Peg in the scene, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. A reminder of what he's, yeah. what he's tethered to. And I would imagine that as a married man, if your pal is getting involved with a married woman, BJ's got to feel something for Doug. He's got to yeah, feel sure. something because he's in that position. I mean, how would he like it if he knew Peg was overseas and some very charming doctor was putting the moves on Peg? He wouldn't like it very much at all. And 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 I, I love in that scene where uh, he uh, he talks about you know he's like uh, I haven't been around much lately, and he says, "Well, that's better, so you're not seeing me uh, crying into my pillow." And he talks about. Uh, you know, he says a lot of people, uh, a lot of people cheat. And BJ says, I read that in cheaters almanac and, <laughs> and Hawkeye's like, uh, you disapprove. And he says, me disapprove. You want disapproval? You disapprove. I'm not the Acme judgment company. And I, I like that. They're sort of almost boxing around each other a little bit where it's almost like BJ is, I, I hate to use the word lore. Cause that has a, a, a sinister cast to it but he's almost trying to draw Hawkeye out into acknowledging what he's doing without BJ himself telling Hawkeye it's wrong. Right. Cause he actually, says, actually. I, you know, I, I'm not the disapproval company, but he's almost like trying to be like, Hey Hawkeye, just pause for a moment. 
what are you doing? Almost like, Hawkeye, you know this isn't right, but I'm not going to be the one to tell you that, that it's not right. I, I don't know. I might probably overanalyzing it, but... I don't, I don't think so. It's a, it's a really interesting scene. You're right. They kind of dance around it. And he, he, he's, he, I think he's being pretty non-judgmental, even though I think deep down he's not really into it either. Um, because he's his friend. I don't think it's, and he even says so as much when he talks about like why he won't cheat on Peg. And it's like, it's not like I'm afraid of hell or anything like that, you know, but like his friend is, is damaging himself in this relationship is what's happening. And so he's trying to get him to see, I think that aspect of it. Hmm. So they talk about, uh, Hawkeye says, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people are unfaithful and, uh, and he says, you know, uh, Hawkeye asks, you know, uh, well, you know, who, who, who else could be unfaithful to? And, and BJ says, well, to whom? And, uh, and Hmm. Hawkeye's like, well, of course, you know, what do you mean? What do you mean to whom? Like, who, who else am I talking about? And BJ says, well, myself, uh, you know, he says, I initially could, could be, uh, could be unfaithful to myself, which is a very interesting line. And it's going to play into something that we're going to hear in a moment. And again, they, they talk about the, uh, by the way, Hawkeye tries to almost lure BJ into it as well. I keep using that word, but he says, uh, you know, what about you? And uh, what about me? He says, have you ever checked into to a hotel without a toothbrush? And uh, he says, never. And he goes, you've never been tempted? Tempted's another subject. Ah, you have been tempted. No, but it's another subject. <laughs> and BJ's just playing with Hawkeye at this point a little bit. And then, of course, he uh, he grabs the, uh, the the radio mic because he realizes the call's about to come in. And then they have this moment. And BJ says to Hawkeye, um, and this is, he says, minding my own business is a full-time job in my hot, in my spare time. It's my hobby. And he says, I can't divide myself emotionally. I couldn't break my word to peg. And then he says, and not because God will send me to hell without an electric fan or just because it's not the right thing to do. I simply don't want to. And I will say, I think that is one of the most, as I said at the top of the show, I think that is one of the most profound things I've ever heard on television because most television, as I said, Mm -hmm. it features men written by men, directed by men and male characters up until this day, even on some of the best TV shows out there, almost all men are written as inveterate horn dogs. That's the, you know, that comes, that's where the comedy comes from, but that's how men are written as overgrown children almost all the time. And it's, it, you know, they will, they will, they will go in for every opportunity they can get. And as, as a young man, uh, I didn't feel that way about myself. And I felt like I didn't see a lot of myself in television. I didn't see a lot of myself in characters. Um, and to hear this man who this character who I loved so much, BJ Honeycutt talk about I'm faithful, not because I'm worried about some God judging me or because I am living under the rubric of some societal structure. I just don't want to, I'm not driven by those self-destructive urges. I don't want to break my word to peg. Because I personally 
don't want to. I value my word more than these other things. I've never heard a character talk like that on television. Mm. I've just never heard it. And it hit me when I was young and I was, I probably saw this episode when I was 14 or 15 and I was just getting into sort of like, you know, adolescence at that point. I was, you know, a little overdue, but nevertheless, but I, I always felt, uh, I don't know. It just, it really struck me as that is the kind of man I want to be that guy right there, BJ Honeycutt. And that has never left me all the years since. And I have had relationships since and, 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 you know, Lord knows I've made mistakes through life, but I have always in a weird way, almost tried to live by that of just this idea of life is tough enough. Let's not make your life tougher by being self-destructive and Lord knows I'm self-destructive in, in, in other ways, but that speech, every time I hear it just absolutely floors me. And the fact that it's buried inside an episode about Hawkeye is to me just so profound that this, they managed that Larry Gilbert and Gene Reynolds decided to give this marvelous speech to BJ. It's not even a speech. It's like three lines, but to give him this wonderful moment in this episode of Hawkeye, I just, I, I'm just, I look at it and I say, this is, this is why this show is just the best. This show is just beyond anything. It's just so incredibly brilliant. And I'm sorry I'm going on for so long about this. No, but it's, just it's like, great. It's almost like this, this is like the fulcrum of why I love this show as much as I do. And I've still, I've seen, I've watched a billion hours of television since then. I've still never seen a speech like this. That's so amazing. You know, I love that you brought it up because um, there's so many things I love about television and stuff, but like when we see these things at young ages, the things that we relate to and that stay with us as we get older are like so important. And it's, it's just, it's such a tribute to the writing that even at that age that that struck you, right. As something that you would want to like keep in mind, even though I'm sure you weren't thinking, Oh, 30 years from now, I'm going to be thinking about this when I do a podcast, but like these things that just stick with you or images or emotions that you feel um, when you're watching film or television, but I'm more prone to television, but um, it's, it's so amazing. And it's great to hear this because I feel like we, sometimes when we talk about TV and film, we talk a lot about the structure and things like that. And sometimes we lose the human connections that we make um, through these things. And, and that's where the heart of all of this stuff comes from. So I'm so glad that you shared that. That's amazing. Yeah. It's just uh, I, every, yeah, just every time uh, I see it, I just, am so impressed by it. If I ever met Mike Farrell, I don't think I'll ever get the chance, but if I ever did, I would feel like that's the scene I would want to talk to him about because I just, I'm just so amazed that, that, that it exists. And, uh, like I said, that's what I think this episode is just, just so great. And again, in a show that could have very easily just blown off the other characters, uh, the fact that BJ has this moment, Mm -hmm. I just, uh, just marvelous, marvelous writing. So then, uh, radar comes in and, uh, with the bad news that, uh, Carly has asked for a transfer and Hawkeye, uh, makes a beeline for the tent and I love where, where uh, Carly's a little dismayed that the news has traveled that fast. And she's like, oh, he doesn't waste any time. And he's like, uh, Raider's my, my friend, my helper, uh, my informer, my snitch. If, if, uh, if, uh, if he had wings, he'd be my falcon. 
Uh, or if he can fly, he'd be my falcon. I love, I love all that stuff. And then um, she's like, uh, and then she's getting ready to leave. And he goes, well, it's worked before. And I love that, you know, for all of Hawkeye's sweet talk, he immediately goes back to sort of character assassination. You know, and, you know, of course, if you're Carly, you are kind of a reminder of, well, maybe this is why I kind of broke up with this guy because he immediately goes, goes to the defensive. I mean, what did he think? Did he really think that they were going to just pick up and be together at this point? I mean, it is kind of an unrealistic idea. Uh, but the fact that Alan Alda as Hawkeye just gets so mad immediately, again, I, you could sort of see Carly's side in all this. Well, I also think, though, sometimes you love somebody so deeply that when these kind of things happen, the pain just, like, erupts. You know, they just have an effect on you. And so I don't think he's thinking about a lot of things because I don't know. We don't actually see them have the affair. So I don't know how much time has passed from the moment that they kissed to when she decides to ask for a transfer. They Maybe they've had lots of sex. Maybe they've not had sex at all. And just, I don't know what's happened. And so, but he is so instantaneously, what's the word I want to use? He's so emotional around her, like in a way you don't see him around other people. She just just explodes. Yeah. And I, and so I think that that she just does that. Not not necessarily a good or bad thing. In this situation, you know, it's because he's feeling so hurt, but it's just like, uh, and I don't know if he does that all the time, like jumps from zero to 180, but like, like, I just feel like the depth of his emotion for her is so deep that it's almost like he can't navigate how to respond to her all the time, you know? And so it just comes out in these ways that are, like, so unlike him. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in fact, in later on, later in the scene, she talks about, she says, I've always been honest with Doug. And Hawkeye says, well, don't stop. And he says, she says, uh, he'll want a divorce. And instead of, you know, pausing for a moment and sort of allowing, giving Carly a break to sort of realize what she's saying, he immediately jumps to, then it'll be just you and me. And so he's completely not thinking of this other guy at all. He just doesn't care. And so his sort of selfishness is really coming to the fore here. And I love that uh, Carly, again, does not buy his shit where she's like, what does that mean? And, you know, he's like, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll love, you know, what does that mean? We'll be together. We'll enjoy each other. We'll revel in each other, which is a great turn of phrase. But I mean, man, she's talking about if I tell my husband the truth, which I should do, that's going to blow up my, my marriage, which she clearly cares very much about. And Hawkeye doesn't give it a second thought. He's just immediately like, well, then it'll just be us then. And it's, it's almost like, uh, like a low level, like murder, mi- you know, like a murder mystery. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, just kill, just kill. It's like those, those movies where, you know, the, the spouse is willing to, the married person is willing to kill their spouse to be with the person that they're having the affair with. And the person having the affair doesn't maybe pause to think, well, geez, if they're willing to kill to get out of the marriage. <laughs> That's a maybe, bad thing. Maybe I shouldn't be with this person because in the classic phrase, if they'll do it for you, they'll do it to you. Yes. Uh, and says, I mean, we're, we're still with Hawkeye, but man, he is a, he's a bit of a cad here. Well, he's just like exploding all over the place. I don't even know that he's thinking, I think he saw the transfer slip and then everything just started boiling in side of him. Like the, there's a desperation 
there for me, you know? And I think that he's clearly like, you're right. He's very self-centered, but he's desperate too. Like, Oh my God, she's going to go away again, you know? And what am I going to do? And it's, it's just like, but there's all these other factors that maybe Carly wasn't even thinking about, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And whether that's, there's no ill intention there, but like this person got put on the back burner and she has to consider all of these things. Whereas Hawkeye's sort of the free party there. And he can say these things that sound really cold um, because he's, because he is not attached in any way to Doug. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, he starts talking about, you know, well, we can, we can get, and she's like, well, we can get married. And he's yeah. And I almost think that she's testing him because I know, I think she knows that, that they're not really going to get married. And then he says, uh, yeah, I'm ready for it. Sure. Sure. I could do it. Let's yeah, of course I can. Yeah. Why well, listen, why shouldn't we, why couldn't we let's just, let's and that's uh leads to as you talked about the back acting uh where we see you know uh, blight dinner from behind and it's you know a great bit of direction by gene reynolds yeah. because the camera doesn't swoop around it doesn't call attention to itself it doesn't announce hey pay attention to what we're showing here it just looks like a fair it's a relatively atypical shot in mass you generally didn't see people from the back like that but it's not a shot that really rings out as, Oh, you know, like some sort of fancy downward shot where you're like, Whoa, they're getting, they're getting highfalutin here. It's only until Carly points it out that you go, Oh, I see what he's done. He's walked behind this table that is up against the wall and he has walked into this corner. And I love that. She, and I love how exasperated her voice gets. She's like, look, look at yourself. Look where you are. And he kind of like, you know, pauses and he looks down you're trapped. You just proposed yourself into a corner. And of course, Hawkeye's still arguing. He's like, well, so ever, who cares? I did it. And she's like, you didn't propose to me. Uh, you proposed to yourself. <laughs> oh, I love and, it. Yeah. And his response, I wanted to try it out on me first. Just <laughs> I love that. Marvelous line. But I love, again, that she knows him so well, where she says, if you had gone into medicine with the same lack of conviction, that you have about marriage, you would have been a mortician's delight. And I love that she chuckles at her own joke. And she just, again, she has this guy's number. She just does. She knows that he is never probably going to be married. He just is not able to do it because as she says, uh, you're always going to be married to your, to your, it's a medicine first. It's going to be, your work is going to be an important single thing in your life. That's fair. That's how it should be. You're very gifted. And, you know, I'm guessing probably for some people, is, is that a gift if it's keeping you from other happiness in life? Yeah, that's, that's what I was talking about. Like when we see like he's really sacrificed a lot in his life for the greater good of medicine, right? So like not just coming to the war and having to deal with all this tragedy, but there's a personal tragedy in his life too because he can never have this sort of, relationship that so many people pursue right and put as the top of their thing that they want in the world they just want somebody to grow old with or they want to get married or they want to have a family and all of these things he's had to sacrifice because he is that gifted you know on top of dealing with um all of these soldiers coming in every day right into this war he never wanted to be in so that's what i find so compelling about this episode is that it's like it's like the tragedy times 10 for Hawkeye just laid out before us, you know, yeah. and it's really kind of this amazing setup for it. 
Yeah. And uh, so she, she talks about, uh, I don't ever want to take a back seat again. I like it up front. Uh, now, of course, as we talked about in, in the beginning, as everyone knows, you know, MASH, yeah, set in the Korean War, but about the Vietnam War. Yeah. And of course, you know, something like this, this is very much right out of 1975. The, the women's movement was, you know, big news. It was, it was in the forefront of American society in the early 70s. And so Carly is, yeah, this is set in 1951, 52, which makes Carly a bit of a trendsetter. But we really know what we're talking about, that this is a 1975 woman who was saying, I don't, I'm not an adjunct to you. Any, to, I don't want to be an adjunct to you. I want to be a partner. I want to be in the front seat. Well, uh, that's so interesting because, you know, second wave feminism in the 70s um, and into the 80s, there was like a real complication uh, with it because the idea, no, she's not a housewife, but the idea of women wanting to be married, I guess being married and have a career, but like the idea marriage almost took like a back seat. Like here she's saying she wants to be up front in a relationship, but relationships were sometimes like uh, looked down upon like a woman who wanted to be a housewife or a mother um, in terms of like the really radical feminists um, uh, were, were seen as lesser. You know, why do you want that? It wasn't only, it was only later that we realized that that women should be able to make the decision of what they want, regardless of what that is, whether mm-hmm. it be a career or a, be a wife or be a mother, right? And however that looks for them, that's what's right for them. But in, in this time period, there was a lot of conflict about that. And so it's interesting because she does have a career, but she talks a lot about being married, right? I, what have you been doing this whole time? Well, mostly I've been married. Like this is a thing that's really important to her. And yet at the same time, she's incredibly independent. And it's, it's a nice balance of what the movement was moving towards, but still kind of being torn up about. Yeah. Obviously they were never going to do this, but this is the kind, this to me, this is the kind of character. She was so compelling that I'm like, you could do a show. Like she could be, her own show. I mean, maybe not Carly Breslin or Carly Walton, but Blythe Danner as like a 1950s nurse. You know, to me, I mean, yeah. to me, she was that compelling that you could have seen this go off and do its own thing. And so Hawkeye finally realizes, okay, it's over. And he even says, you're smart. And she says, sometimes, which is, you know, obviously sort of a nod to, well, if I was really smart, I wouldn't have probably gotten reinvolved with you. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, she's probably blowing up her marriage. She's probably blowing up her marriage at this point. And uh, they embrace one last time. And uh, I mean, it's a little, mm, if I have to criticize this episode, I've been waxing this episode's Jeep for the last 65 minutes. But um, the one tiny conceit, is where he says, well, we don't have to say goodbye now. And she's like, well, I asked them to rush it. Well, what, what does that mean? I mean, like, what? Is there a Jeep right outside the tent? Right? Like, <laughs> nobody gets transferred that fast. Um, I'm, I'm betting that even, you know, she goes to Colonel Potter and tells Colonel Potter the truth of all this, which is, again, a whole other scene that we never got to see because now Potter knows about all this. But I would think Potter would say, well, we'll transfer you as soon as we can, but I'm not calling in a special favor just to get you out of the unit because Hawkeye's in love with you. But, you know, obviously you want to end the episode with them parting. Uh, you know, you can't drag it out. And then he, of course, has to end it with a joke where he says, do me a favor. If anyone asks, I turned you down. And she just goes right. And uh, he gives her one last pregnant pause and they walk out. And that is the end of the, the, the second act. And it's just heartbreaking. 
it's just heartbreaking. You know they can't be together, but man, these two are dynamite together. Yeah, they're so good. And and I think everybody's had a person in their life that elicits that kind of emotion from them. Mm-hmm. And so when you're watching it, I mean, they're able to end it way more amicably than I think a lot of people do, Yeah, uh, you know, and so there's a fantasy element there, but there's something I think really relatable about what they're going through, even if the circumstances are different that I love. It's just a very human episode. It's absolutely marvelous. So then the button scene is uh, Hawkeye and BJ, once again, doing kind of nonsense word games where they're doing initials, GR. And uh, he says, uh, well, give me a hint. It's a living American actor. And this joke comes out of left field. Hawkeye goes, George Raft. And BJ goes, he's just a living American. Oh, I know. I love that. What does that even mean? Like, when, yeah. why, why the shot at George Raft out of nowhere? I, didn't, I know. It's just it's really funny. incomprehensible. It's funny. I really love this scene because I feel like through this whole thing, BJ has been like a terrific friend. Yeah. And at the end, he's, he's really like, oh, let's just get your mind off what's going on. Let's just do this stupid game that mm-hmm. I'm, you're never going to win. And you're, you know what I mean? And it's all done just out of, out of friendship. And it's just a, a lovely moment for me. Uh, it's great. And then he says, finally, who the GR is. Hawkeye guesses a couple. Hawkeye, BJ says, no. And then he finally says, Gerald Rasmussen, my high school drama teacher. And of course, Hawkeye's like, well, how, how am I supposed to? Who? He was a terrific actor. Who's ever heard of him? And then he says, everybody, if he hadn't died. And Hawkeye's like, you said living American. And, and BJ says, if I'd said dead, you, have guessed, you would have guessed Gerald just like that. So he's just screwing with Hawkeye. He's just screwing in them, which is very funny. And, and then they, you know, they, they joke a little bit. And then you know, we're like, as you're sitting here watching this episode, you're like, well, where are we ending here? Where are we going with this? And then there's this pause. Because, of course, we don't know how much time has passed. Since right. the sim, has it been a month? Has it been six months? We don't know. But obviously it's probably a couple of days. And then there's this great pause and Hawkeye ends with one of the great to me final final lines in any MASH episode where he says, I love the way she drops into my life every few years to perform uh, some little open heart surgery. And PJ says, it's got to be rough. And then he says, you know, I'll live. And And then he said he ends it with the whole, in some ways, I don't mind that she's gone again. It's that that she never altogether leaves. Yeah, I love that. And uh, I mean, that's just an absolutely marvelous line. And I think, again, all, a lot of us can relate to someone in their life who's gone. Either they're gone because they've died or they've gone because your life has changed. But they're, they're never totally gone. And uh, yeah. it's something, again, it's an episode that when I was 12, I didn't care about. You know, I don't, because you're 12. I didn't care about Chewbacca when I was 12. You know what I mean? I don't care about it. (laughs) You know, I don't want to hear about Hawkeye's romance problems. What do I care? Uh, But then you hit, you know, you you get, you hit your mid (laughs) twenties and you have some experiences and you start going, ah, yes. Um, Yeah, totally Hawkeye. And so this episode went from one of my all time least favorites to absolutely one of my favorites. And the fact that it sits in the middle of season four, which I've already been going on and on about all season that I think this is the finest season of television anybody's ever produced um, just says something that it's just everything they tried to me in season four uh, is either an A plus or like an A minus or at the, like being the most critical, like a B plus. I mean, to me, this is MASH's grade point average this year is like a 3.99. It's just off the charts. Good. And this episode to me is in some ways my favorite of season four 
even among all these other towering shows, wow. it's still kind of one of my favorites and it's still, it still resonates with me all these years later. I just wish I could take you back in time and make you a critic uh, for TV guides. So you could write, oh, what do I care about? I, I was into Chewbacca. <laughs> exactly. That's, a, that's sort of how I think about things. I think, well, what was I worried about at 12? Chewbacca. That's what I was worried about. That was, you know, but no, not so much now. I mean, yeah, a yeah. little bit still, but, 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 uh, but yeah, it's, it's just such a, it's just such a marvelous show. And like I said, that speech with BJ to me is still unparalleled for its maturity and its depth of feeling and just the idea that, uh, you know, you, you, you want to, you can do something because you just don't want to do it. Not because society is telling you not to do it. It's because you yourself recognize the value of, of doing something a certain way and being true to yourself. And uh, it's the reason why I think so many people love BJ Honeycutt. Uh, no, no offense to Trapper John. I know your beloved Wayne Rogers. Well, it's interesting because I wondered how, how Trapper John's character would have handled this episode. I thought about it because he was so different from BJ and like he clearly was not a good husband at all. And I just am curious, like how he would have approached watching his friend do this thing and how they would have written him. It would have been totally different. Obviously, clearly wouldn't have gotten the same kind of profoundness that you've gotten here because of BJ's uh, sense of personal, whatever morality or however he wants to steer his own ship. Right. But like, um, but I did wonder what that would look like. And I, I don't have an answer for that, but it would have been a completely different episode. Shit, that's for, that's for damn sure. So, yeah. um, so, okay. So uh, Amanda, do you have a favorite line or joke from this episode? Well, I feel like such a, like a, now I'm 12 because I wrote down my favorite line and it's like the most porky centric line in the episode. <laughs> but when they show up at the nurse's cab or tent and they're giving them all those things, uh, BJ says, Oh, and we brought you shampoo because we couldn't find real poo. <laughs> and I laughed for like two minutes <laughs> because I first of all, I've never heard, I don't know if I've heard people say poo on TV before, but, um, <laughs> But it made me laugh. And then when I rewatched it, it was still the funniest line, followed by the line I talked about where Mary Jo Catlett's character says, I love him. And Carly says, which one? And she's like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I love BJ's wordplay. And I kind of like that BJ has dad jokes. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, he'll, he'll occasionally do a dad joke. And Hawkeye kind of rolls his eyes a little bit because it's, I think it's Hawkeye feels like his humor is like a little bit above that. But BJ is a dad. He's a young dad. He's a baby. He's a father to a very small child. But he's he's got that dad joke energy a little bit. And that shampoo is a total dad joke. Yeah, it just energy. makes me laugh. It yeah. makes me laugh. I'm sorry. Oh, I, hey. I, this show is like brilliant in its writing, but that's the line that sticks out for me. You know, I mean, sometimes people that are highbrow doing lowbrow is extra funny because it's highbrow people doing it. You know, you know that MASH was capable of a lot more sophisticated jokes than that. So when they did a joke like that, you're like, oh, they were just enjoying themselves being able to do something a little simple. So well, it makes me laugh, too. I find the whole thing. I, I find that whole exchange really funny about the, you know, the 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 uh, 4077 uh, stationery, which is toilet paper. I mean, just all that stuff. It's we almost funny. can't foresee where the episode's going to go based off the that scene because yes. it, it is very lighthearted. And then it becomes much more like emotional as you go along, but it just starts off as kind of like this fun. Let's see these girls and, and this old girlfriend I used to have, and you're just not expecting it to go down the road at all. No, no, it does take a hard right turn into drama. Uh, My favorite joke is, and this is a line I laugh at 
every time. I've seen this episode 5,000 times. I laugh at it every time where Carly shows up in the swamp and she tells Hawkeye he was right about how bad the food is. And Hawkeye says, yeah, I'll never understand how the cook got off at Nuremberg. I just, (laughs) I I mean, I've said this on other episodes. I love jokes that you have to put together yourself. I think there's a reward there for having to say, wait, oh, okay. You have to know what Nuremberg is. And you have to then be like, oh, Hawkeye saying he was a Nazi. That's how bad the food is. Is that the, and just the idea that the cook got off at Nuremberg on top of it too, that he just, somehow, I just, I fall down laughing every time I, I hear that line. It's just so, so funny. So I, I mean, to me, this is just an A plus episode. And I always feel like I have to, I don't, I'm imagining things in my mind here. I always feel like I have to go to bat for it a little bit because when I have talked to people that love MASH the way I do, this is not an episode people put in their top 10. I never see it. I never see people say, oh, uh, more I see you. I love that. Welcome to Korea. And Abyssinia Henry or Dreams or Goodbye Radar. Yeah. Or of course, Goodbye Farewell and I'm in. All that, you know, even some of the, uh, you know, Adam's Ribs. I mean, a lot of great, ep- obviously, all great episodes. But I never see anybody mention this one. And so I always feel like it's, in, in a weird way, my own little private thing. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this, Amanda. I mean, you're the, the queen of TV movies. You must have, you know, there are TV movies that the random person who knows more than the average person about television we can name a couple of TV movies off the top of their head. But you obviously know this stuff chapter and verse, and there's got to be some that only you really know about and you love. And you're kind of like, Oh boy, I, no one else will go to bat for this one, but boy, I love this thing starring Valerie Harper. You know, I mean, you, you must have that experience yourself. Well, all Valerie Harper's movies are brilliant. I mean, I think that's okay, right. thing. Well, Just a random of, name I was pulling up. Yeah, I, now I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. I mean, there's lots of... I. So for me, TV movies are all my babies. I love all of them. And even the ones that don't get it right are doing something that I like. Or I understand that they have to do things that are more difficult than a theatrical film would have, like with shooting schedules and budgets and all that stuff. So yeah, but now of course I can't think of one film off the top of my head, but there is a movie called Griffin and Phoenix. And it's interesting because it's our Peter Falk. And um, I always draw a blank on Jill Clayburgh is the love interest in that. And, um, and it's about two people dying of cancer. It was written by the, or produced by the people who made soap. And so it's kind oh, of wow. a comedy and a drama. And it's, and it's interesting because when people talk about TV movies, um, they always want to talk about genre movies. And of course my book is centered on genre films and I love them more than anything, but there's so many dramas that are fantastic and they just get disregarded, I guess, because they're dramas and people want like the monster movies and all that stuff. And so Griffin and Phoenix, I don't think I have to go to bat for that movie. I think people who've seen it understand that it's like this, one of the greatest TV movies ever made. It's beautiful. It's sad. It's heart wrenching. It's funny. It captures life and death in ways that no other film really has. But like, um, but it's fallen by the wayside um, because it's not, it doesn't have a cyborg in it or it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Or a gargoyle or whatever. And, um, and that's unfortunate. And so, so I do find like recently I was interviewed for uh, delirium magazine and they asked me to make a top 10 list of my favorite TV movies. And it's like all genre. And then I threw in Griffin and Phoenix. Cause I was like, you know, people just need to know about this movie. Right. And, and it's an oddball one, especially considering what I concentrate on, but it's a movie that like, I will, 
constantly talk about. And when you talked about this, there's also, I'm a big fan of Magna PI and there's Magna PI episodes that are not fan favorites. And I just will tell you why they're amazing for hours and hours. I won't do that here, obviously, but like, <laughs> um, but there's, you know, anybody who loves a certain show or a certain kind of film, um, there's always going to be something in there that you realize other people don't understand on the way you do, mm-hmm. you know, and that makes them just that more, much more special, you know, to me. Yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, I have this experience again, not to keep droning on with this show because this episode's already gone on long enough, but I have these same experiences on my other show, Pod Dylan is that there's, there's the songs everybody knows. And then I have my songs mm-hmm. that I feel like, Oh, nobody appreciates this song. So I'm going to talk extra long about it because I love it so much. So yeah, this episode is, is that. And like I said, if I ever had the chance to meet, well, if I ever met Alan Alda, I would just make a complete ass of myself. So I don't think I'd even be able to get any words out, let alone have the presence of mind to talk about some great show. And I'm sure he would not want to hear about MASH because I'm sure he's heard about it his whole life. But I always feel like if, if put a gun to my head, if you were like, you have one episode to talk about Alan, talk MASH with Alan Alda with, I bring up this one and I do the same thing for Mike Farrell. I would be like, all right, all right, we're not going to talk about you, you know, the, the smothering the chicken. We're going to talk about the more I see. <laughs> I feel like I would get to that one. Um, so again, I just think it's, it's just overall brilliant. So this episode uh, kicks off the final three shows of season four. Uh, and I will talk about this in this, in the remaining two that I think that these three shows, the more I see you deluge and the interview are, mash at its peak mash absolutely as good as it ever was and the fact that they did three in a row like this three shows completely different from each other in every conceivable way and yet as brilliant as it as mash could be to me this is what cements this to me it's like it's almost like uh it's an old magazine that's falling apart except there's this one staple that's holding it all together. Not that MASH is falling apart in any way, but to me, these three episodes are just everything to me, these three shows. And so uh, I am going to probably go just as long on the next two as I did on this one. And this one was just super important to me. So Amanda, you know, I love uh, talking to you and I'm really so thrilled that you come back every year on MASHcast to talk with me. So thank you so much for coming back. Thank you. I always love coming on and it always reminds me how much I adore the show. Well, that's great. I'm glad the I'm glad the show could do that for you. So, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Okay, well, um, on Twitter, I'm on Made for TV Mayhem. I have an Instagram. I think that's also called it Made for TV Mayhem. And uh, you can follow my podcast uh, on Twitter at uh, TV Mayhem Podcast. And I think you just look up the Made for TV Mayhem show on Facebook, and uh, it'll take you over there. If you want to hear about TV movies, or you want to hear me talk about how much I love Robert Forrester, <laughs> those are the places. Oh, we all love Robert Forrester. Well, yeah. We love Robert Forrester. Best. Absolutely. So, uh, okay, you you heard the lady, everybody. Um, so if you want to find back episodes of this show, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcaster, podcast catcher of your choice. We're always talking MASH on Twitter at MASH477Cast. And then finally, if you want to support the Find Water Podcast Network, let's go to patreon.com slash podcast, And there you're going to lock various rewards. One of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big salute to Nicholas Prom, Russell Burbage, Dan Peel, Britt Schramm, Mike Thomas, and Michael Porter for their support of MASHCast. Regarding when it comes to Patreon, we are not struggling in advertising here at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So thanks everybody for your support of MASHCast. So that is going to do it. We will see you next week. But until then, that is all. Wait, are you-
you busy? Uh, Major Burns says to fix the lights in surgery. Right. He's afraid to sleep in the dark. <laughs>